Hello and welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello friend, I hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. Every single episode, you get that bonus greeting. So hit the subscribe button. I am here with the man, Justin Ross, VP and Chief Compliance Officer FedEx for FedEx Corp. How you doing, or how you doing, uh, Justin? Hey, great, Nick. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, you're somebody that I kind of came on my radar a while ago. You do a lot of sort of thought leadership in this game. You obviously run uh, ethics and compliance for an organization that is near and dear to all of our hearts to the extent that we've uh, lived off of FedEx's services during the pandemic or if we have why. My wife, by the way, loves your work. Uh, she's very happy with FedEx and um, how it has changed her life. So anyways, um, I saw you on a couple of panels and a couple of different conferences and um, you seem like the kind of guy that uh, kind of my kind of guy, somebody that's kind of driven a lot of cool change and have a pretty cool story. So I was excited to get you on the ethics experts. Hey, happy to be here. And, and I'm always happy to hear when someone's had a good experience with FedEx. So, so keep it coming, man. And, and let me know. Let me know when she has a bad experience as well. So we all right. All right. Well, I'm sure it'll be few and far between. But why don't we dive in, um, Justin, and talk a little bit about your sort of ethics and compliance philosophy, because I think your background is pretty interesting. And I think you bring a lot of probably interesting things to the table that are probably not common relative to a lot of other people in the game. And, you know, just to kind of frame it out, a lot of what this podcast is about is about giving techniques, mindsets, mentalities, frameworks to folks that are in different corners of the world that are kind of fighting the same battle that we're all fighting together. Right. So um, when you look back on your career, what do you think has kind of set you apart from a mentality standpoint or from a way that you approach this game? Yeah, well, Nick, I'll give you a little bit about my background. So I'm a lawyer. So I'm a, I guess so still a lawyer. I don't say recovering lawyer, but I am a recovering litigator. I used to be a litigator uh, for a long time. So uh, after law school, I worked in a law firm four or five years, did litigation, you know, uh, whether class action litigation, commercial litigation, things like that. Mm -hmm. Started at FedEx in 2003 and continued in litigation. So did uh, all types of litigation for FedEx for about 12 years, got into the compliance game around 2015 and, uh, you know, frankly, I think the litigation background is was pretty good for compliance. You know, on the litigation side, you're kind of cleaning up uh, messes, not necessarily compliance messes, but but issues sometimes when controls or, or certain things didn't go as planned. So it gives you a neat insight. You're on the back end of it, but you see how things can go wrong. And it really, I thought, gives you gives you different insights than when you're on the front end of it. Uh, in compliance. So you're looking at like, hey, how can I keep us from getting in that position that we got in litigation, whether it's civil litigation, government litigation, or anything like that. So I think that that gave uh, me a little bit different perspective on that. And frankly, I have a couple of folks on my team that are former litigators as well. So uh, I think that that skill set is, is pretty good in compliance. So tell me some more about what has attracted you to bringing on more people with that litigation background. What are those sort of base Base skill sets that are developed in that game. What are those those mentalities that you know? I, I would imagine allow you to kind of bring somebody on board and get them ramped quicker with with these with these skills that you saw that served you so well. Yeah, yeah, and it, it depends on the role. You know, it, it depends on the role. I think investigations. You know, we we my team does a lot of investigations, so obviously a litigator is good in that role. But I've also found litigators good in program building as well. You know, establishing controls and. What I meant by that is when you're on the litigation side, you really dive into, you know, kind of fixing what may have gone wrong in controls. And then when you get on the program building side, you're building those controls. 
So it's almost like, you know, when you know how to fix something that's that's been messed up, then you know how to build it or you get better ideas or different ideas on how to build it. So not only on the what you would think traditional skill sets like investigations, hotline management, things like that. But we've also seen on the policy building, program building, control building as well, uh, where litigators have a good good skill set. But, hey, I'm not saying uh, I don't hire, I don't have all litigators. I mean, I think you got to have a broad range of skill sets, as, as you probably know. Uh, and all the CCOs out there know uh, on the compliance team. And, and frankly, nowadays, uh, to me, project management is the biggest skill set and the most valuable skill set you can have in, in compliance because we're continuously you know, building and, and continuing projects and thinking in ways of different ways to do things. And that requires a good project management skill set. So that's a comment I've never heard before. And I do dozens and dozens of these conversations with folks like you. Um, that's actually a pretty unique answer. And I've heard some, you know, I guess kind of a caricature is maybe not a caricature is the, the right word. What, what the typical sort of archetype is, is somebody who has a legal background, rather, whether it's, you know, a lawyer or they're in-house or I'm sorry, a litigator or in-house or something like that. And I've started to hear people talk about, you know, what you just said, that there needs to be a little bit more diversity uh, in terms of background and perspective and so forth, because our programs are not these like nascent things anymore. They're living, breathing organisms of their own that touch so many different parts of our organization. You need to be able to pull from those communication skill sets and things like that. Do you feel like that's sort of a, a new mentality? Um, do you feel like people are starting to digest it? And what do you think has kind of prevented other organizations, whether it's, I don't know why, from kind of embracing this sort of diversity of background and seeing how this kind of, um, you know, these diverse skill sets can sort of come together to achieve this, you know, ever evolving amorphous end goal? Yeah, look, I, I don't know that other organizations aren't embracing this. I do feel, you know, in, in my benchmarking and discussions with with other CCOs and compliance departments, I think that we're getting we're getting in that direction. You know, I think everyone's starting to realize that. But I think there's a couple of things that are that are pushing us in that direction. One is the emphasis on data analytics. Uh, you know, look, a I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm not a good project manager. I'm definitely not a good data analytics person. Um, so the the move and stress and focus on data analytics from the enforcement agencies has really required us to kind of shift the mindset right. to hire people with that analytics background. You know, whether it's IT or, or whatever it is in analytics. So that's a different skill set. The other thing, and, and it's something that that I'm always pushing uh, on the team, and, and we treat our team almost like we're a startup company or, or we're like a company that's that's trying to survive in a very competitive landscape. And what I mean by that is we have to constantly innovate and improve right. to, stay, to stay ahead of the regulator expectations, to stay ahead of the bad guys that are trying to defraud you all the time. So what is that next thing? How can we improve? What kind of project or technology can we use to get better? And when you do that, and when you're continuously trying to prove and you're, and you're creating these projects to do that, you need project management skills. You know, whether it's implementing a new technology, uh, implementing a new system, starting a new program, I think those program management skills plus that analytics background helps in that mindset to continuously innovate and improve. That's actually super interesting. Um, I love how you talk about it being like a startup. I mean, if you think about a startup, it's just constant project after project to get something going. And what an overlooked skill. I mean, and it is an actual skill for sure. Like I am not a project management guy. And as we've gotten some guys on our team that are super adept at it, it's become not only like so apparent of like how, uh, how bad I am at it, 
but how critical having somebody good in that role, like how much faster you can move, how much, you know, it's really about building an engine as you're driving or whatever. And like those gears have to mesh up or you're going to be spinning wheels or the, the story you painted to the board to get the budget you need for this project. If that falls flat, that ends up kind of compromising your own credibility. I mean, there's just so many like, there's so many like radiating implications from things not not being able to land that plane right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it ties into something Bubba, you always uh, also talked about in your podcast, or I've seen some uh, a, a lot of mention of this is business agility in the compliance field. And I think what you said ties into that. And and you know what we mean by business agility is you know being fast, being agile with projects, taking on a project failing fast if you fail and then move yeah. to something else don't spend 12 months on it if you know in month three you're right. failing you know <laughs> so so i encourage the team to do that hey try things try things try things figure out fast if it's going to work or not if it's not going to work right when you know it's not going to work let's move to something else so bring me back to law school you're in law school i'm sure you're trying to i don't know what law school is like but i mean there's obviously different sort of paths out of it um what were some of the ones you were considering and what what attracted you so much to to litigation? Well, uh, Nick, to be perfectly honest with you, the only reason I went to law school was I had a political science undergrad degree. And, and what the heck was I going to do with that? You know, after after graduate, <laughs> write a book. I didn't want to write a book. I wasn't going to be some pundit on TV. So, you know, law school was kind of like, OK, let me go to law school and uh, and uh, spend another three years in school because I actually enjoy school uh, and enjoy the camaraderie of my classmates. But you know, um, it was uh, I enjoyed the the courtroom aspect of it. You know, I enjoyed the speaking in, in front of people. I enjoyed jury trials. I enjoyed the you know kind of competitive nature uh, of litigation. Uh, you know, writing a brief, uh, convincing a judge or a jury to go your way. All that to me was was it still is invigorating. I mean, there's parts of that 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 you miss. I mean, the funny thing about litigation is. You know, you always won or, or lost in litigation. You could you could win in litigation. In compliance, you can rarely win. You know, it's just it's keep from losing. Yeah, just don't lose. Right? <laughs> yeah, don't lose. It's funny. Um, so you know, unfortunately, you don't have that that thrill of victory um, that you that you had in litigation. So so it's a little different mindset. So when you got into it, how did you know you? Were, well, how long did you stay in litigation? Yeah, so I'll tell I'll tell you a little story uh, about how our compliance group got started at FedEx. So I was in litigation. Oh gosh, I was a litigator from if you think from '98 until 2015. I pretty much focused on litigation. I had a couple of uh, maybe a year or two at FedEx where I did some regulatory and other work, but you know we didn't have a uh, an in-house sort of corporate compliance group at FedEx until 2015. Okay. Uh, which was a little bit behind for us for a, for a Fortune 150 company at the time. Uh, but we, uh, we hired our first CCO in 2015, um, and he hired me from litigation. So, you know, he, he opened, he had two director spots uh, for his team to support him for compliance. And um, I applied for the job because I thought, hey, this is a new group. This is a growing group, very impactful group uh, for the company. Uh, it was a great opportunity for me and um, came in and I had a little, you know, pretty much a uh, litigation background was was a majority of what I worked. Um, I was lucky. Uh, I got the gig, which was really cool. And we started off with the CCO of me, another director and uh, an individual contributor. And we began the group in 2015 and, and we wow. grew four of us then um, and we're 19 now at the corporate level. So we've got 19 folks on my team here wow. at the corporate group. Now we have business units 
uh, around the US and around the world, most business units have their own legal teams. And we've got compliance teams in those business units as well that have a dotted line to me. So interesting. when you look at the uh, entire org of FedEx, we have 19 at the corporate level that focus on compliance. I bet all up we have you know, probably 60 to 70 uh, folks uh, around the uh, enterprise that, that focus on or have a significant amount of their work on compliance. So that's, take me back to that. What was that like, that first nine months, those first kind of 24 months? I mean, how did you prioritize what to do? I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you probably did 20 years of work in the last five years or something. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, before, I mean, I, and, and don't get me wrong, look, before 2015, we had a FedEx had a significant and, and a good compliance program. It was just, uh, it was more disparate. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, concentrated. It was more uh, the regions, the business units I talk about did their own thing. So we didn't really have a cohesive strategy uh, on compliance. So once we got the corporate group, it was figuring out, okay, how can we support these regions and business units on compliance while also bringing a strategic sort of unified vision of compliance for the enterprise? And, and it was tough. I mean, it was very tough at first. So when you're when you're starting a new group, you've got to introduce yourself to the entire company. And we've got what we at the time we probably had 400,000 employees operating in, in 220 countries around the world. That's a lot of work, you know, marketing right. work to get your name and your brand out there. But also you've got a thing where you're working with business units that used to do this on their own. You know, yeah, right. Say, hey, this is ours. We got it. And now you're kind of coming in and you're saying, well, I have oversight now for this. I have to report to the audit committee. So I need to know what you're doing and I need to right. know what's going on there. So inevitably, you know, you're going to get a little pushback there. So that was uh, that was tough is just kind of establishing those relationships with those business unit teams. But I think we've done. Uh, the team's done a great job. We've got a very, I think, cohesive compliance group uh, here at the corporate level and with those business units now where we're always, for the most part, you know, 99% of the time we're on the same page. I just had this picture of, you know, a restaurant hires, they're not hiring a whole new kitchen. They're just hiring a new chef. And so this chef has to come in and everyone's like, I know how to make this stuff. I've been making this stuff longer than you. Like, how did you, and, and because it was such a, uh, distributed sort of, you know, compliance program that you sort of had, you guys had to collectively sort of wrap your arms around and provide some structure and vision and all that stuff, which I think would be interesting to get into. How, what lessons did you learn in iterating that sort of proving yourself to guys other than using just, you know, you seem like a persuasive guy. It seems like you're not walking around with a writing crop and saying like, well, I'm in charge now. Like I think to get alliance from people on a genuine level, being as that we're not in the military, you have to you have to like win them over. So how did you get, get good at like winning all these people over in all these different pockets of the world that were basically already cooking the menu that you're going to be kind of over now? Yeah, that's a good analogy and a good question. And, and there's a couple of ways that you do that. One is show value, show value. And, and what I mean by that is we were um, SMEs, subject matter experts in certain areas like anti-corruption, uh, antitrust, uh, code of conduct. So by being subject matter experts and showing these business units, hey, we know this, we know this program, here's what we can do for you. Here's how we can help you manage that risk. Here's how we can help you increase awareness. So showing value, number one, first and foremost, is is helping them and and really having those business units looking like, man, we couldn't have done that without, and we call ourselves at FedEx, it's CIC, Corporate Integrity and Compliance. That's our 
that's the uh, abbreviation that everybody calls us by. You know, CIC really helped us. So, so, so they showed value. So that was one. Two, what helped was actually um, creating a budget for enterprise tools. And, mm. and what I mean by that is we took on the enterprise hotline. So it would be our budget, out of our budget, we wouldn't make the business units pay for it. It would all come out of the corporate budget. So we owned and ran the enterprise hotline, which is a right. lot of work. And, totally. and there was a lot of work that a business unit would have to take on and a lot of budget. So by taking on things like that, uh, third-party risk management tool and database, we took on that. Um, some of our data privacy tools, uh, we took on that and, and had ownership of those. So by you know taking that and, and taking that out of their budget and kind of managing those enterprise tools, which they had to have. I mean, they had to have a hotline. Yeah, right. They had to have a third-party risk management database. We took that on, took it off their plate. That helped out as well. So showing value, you know, helping them a little bit out on budget and some of these enterprise tools, and then creating and thinking and developing enterprise tools that are going to help them to do their jobs better and more efficiently as well, whether through automation. Uh, things like that. Another way, uh, training. Uh, we would, my team, as it as it grew uh, over the years, we would go and travel and do anti-corruption or compliance training for them. They didn't have the time or the resources. We'd say, hey, we'll send some bodies out there to help you train. So that created some huge goodwill too. When we would come out, take a time out of our, our schedules, travel across the world and, and deliver training. So any of that, you know, showing value always is going to help you get goodwill. Yeah, at some level, you're, we're kind of talking about building trust, right? And so the way to kind of build trust is, I mean, you kind of touched on kind of all the things. Um, there's this really cool trust trust equation, and it's a kind of an interesting model, but it's it's basically a, a, a fraction. And, and the numerator is credibility, reliability, and intimacy, being just a normal person, like a human being. And then that's all divided by your self-focus. So you see these people that are sometimes like have a really high numerator, but they're so like self-focused they're so selfish and all that stuff it's like you can't trust them farther than you can throw them mm -hmm. but everything you just described there your subject matter experts you're coming in you're adding a bunch a bunch of value they could rely on you to take stuff off of their plate and it sounded like you also had a real kind of others focus you were really focused on them on hey how can i bring some more value to uh to the table for you because i mean i'm just putting myself in the shoes of these folks who are in all these little you know these not little you're a massive company but their teams are probably relatively small and there's not this sort of co corporate push um, to like use them as a strategic asset. I'm sure they all had a myriad of projects and things that they wanted to do, but they were caught up trying to manage this thing on a one-off basis and so forth for you to be able to remove those things. And you're obviously a pretty personable guy. I'm sure, you know, you got pretty good at sort of building that trust. And what's interesting, I think just psychologically is once that trust is established, it's so much, there's so much grace in that relationship that you can really start to move a lot faster. I've seen a lot of people try to push, like push their agenda though, not just in my company or other deals I've done and stuff like that. They try to push their agenda so, so, um, so quickly or something that they don't spend any of any of the time in those in intimacy pieces or those self-focus pieces or, you know, minimizing that self-focus that, and then they're puzzled six months into your point, like when their initiative is falling flat. Why is that so hard for people to get, you think? Yeah. Well, look, the the one of the things that that we struggled early on is is we, you know, there's a lot of pressure on a compliance team. And you're reporting to the audit committee and you had a corporate compliance group that's responsible for compliance across the enterprise. And you, you kind of sometimes get in a mindset where 
you tell these business units what they have to do. Hey, right. y'all need to do this. Y'all need to do that. We need to do this. You know, DOJ says do that. But 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 you can't get in that mode because they're going to resent you for it. And, and what I told the team all the time, I said, don't tell them to do anything that you're not willing to do for them and offer to do for them. Huge. Because otherwise they're going to resent you. And, wow, and that's and huge. Being, yeah. The, at the end of the day, you can't run a compliance program. You can't even run a compliance program with 18 people at the corporate level. You need help across the enterprise. And those relationships, Nick, are key. And when you build those relationships and they trust you, then those business partners are going to help you to, to meet your compliance objectives. They're going to help you on projects. They're going to they're going to support you. Uh, they're going to evangelize for you. So you got to build those relationships. And like you said, it, you, you hit the nail on the head with trust. It's got to be that level of trust between right. you, those business units and those legal teams and those compliance teams. And once you build that, they trust you. They know you're not going to ask them to do something uh, that's not extremely important or that you're not willing to help them with then, you know, hey, that's the key to me. I've never heard that before. I mean, I've heard a hundred thousand times, don't ask someone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. That's a new one. Don't ask yeah. someone to do something do that you're not them. willing to do, do for them. them. That's do way them. different. Yeah. That's a way yeah. different thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I told the team, I said, if we ever tell them they need to do something, then you need to offer in the same sentence that, hey, we'll come and do it for you if you need us to. Wow. That's a game changer because most people... What's behind that? Is that a, is that just a psychological hack to you? Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know I what I'm saying? I, I mean, that's a like very good thing. I'm going to start doing yeah, that. Well, with my, uh, it, it's still. I think you've talked to plenty of compliance officers. Compliance is tough in the totally. company because you know a lot of times there's not clarity on what we own and what we don't own. Right. A lot of times it's you know the business has compliance fatigue. And it, it is very tough sometimes for us to, to do what we need to do. We've got all the pressure and the risk, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily always have the authority or ownership that we need. Or, so the, we, or, the, or the possibility of, of winning to your other point. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and that's why, you know, building these relationships uh, with, with the business units and be, having a clarity of focus and mission and, you know, almost over communicating what, what your mission is and why you're there. Uh, all that's extremely important. And, and look, it's a, it's a daily challenge. I, I, every day, totally. you know, you face some of those challenges. And I just, I just had a meeting with one of my directors to talk about how can we, what's the appropriate way for us to have the discussions with the business units about live training? You know, live training is a hard thing to do because totally. you don't, you know, you never have enough resources to live train. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it takes a lot of time. It's extremely valuable to me. It's way more valuable than, than online or anything yeah. like that, but it's tough to do. And so we're figuring out how can we encourage, uh, our operating units and our business units to meet certain live training goals without it coming across like y'all need to do this, you know, and it's, how do we have these discussions with them? Do we give them guidance documents? Do we actually have a call with them to sit down and say, hey, let's discuss right. a training plan for you and how we can help you? I mean, it's every day, man, every day that, that we're trying to figure out that um, whatever that that silver bullet is. Right. Uh, it keeps changing as well. So what did you guys figure out? Are you still trying to work it out? No, no. I think what we're going to do is this. I think the, the, the best way to do that uh, a lot of times is we're going to sit down with each individual business, you know, almost like a risk assessment and say, hey, what are your... What are your big risks you see from a training perspective? What are the areas you need to cover? 
what's our resources? What's the feasibility of getting this done? Let's do a plan. We're going to hit four training sessions this year. We're going to focus on these groups. And then my team's going to help you on one of these. So Smart. you sit down have that discussion where we're both working on the plan together. We both got stake in it. I think that's going to be more helpful than just saying, hey, here's what you should do for training this year. I mean, that, that to me is not helpful. No, it's not helpful. And also it, it's that approach almost like discounts insights that they may have that you like, it presumes that they don't have any insights that you don't have. You know what I'm saying? Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I, uh, I, I really nerd out on this stuff because I love the kind of, I love the game of it. Um, because you don't have, so a lot of people think that like, oh, you just need to have a title and then now you have the authority and people are going to listen to you. Well, the fact is that we're not again in the Russian army here. So, um, that's not how anything works. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you can't just, I can't, you know, it doesn't even work with my kids and I'm their dad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah. there's so much just, and maybe it's because of my personality or whatever, but I just think it's all persuasion. You have to persuade people to get things done. You have to get them to buy into what you're trying to do or whatever they're going to do is, you know, not to make a pun here, a bad one, but like, it's just going to be the minimum compliance, the minimum, the minimum amount of compliance to, to whatever. And what we, in the game that we're in, it's so much translating, you know, some words on a page into some, you know, some rule set that again, you can never articulate every single machination and every single, um, you know, permutation of a situation to give people guidance. It's a spirit of the law kind of thing. And you need to get, you need, you need to engage the hearts and minds to get that sort of that spirit of compliance where they actually want to do the thing or like, Oh, okay. This actually makes a lot of sense or, man, doing this is going to save me X, Y, and Z. Cause I mean, people only do things for three reasons, right? Like to do something faster, to save themselves some, some pain or to like get some pleasure today to kick more ass or something yeah. like that's, that's, that's literally the reason that everybody does anything. And that, and to use that sort of compliance 1.0 mentality in today's age, when everything's distributed and we're sort of, regardless of your industry, you're in a knowledge work economy now. Um, it's just, it's not only so backwards, but it's like, so inefficient. It's such an inefficient way to like administer a program that to your point is consistently just changing and consistently more, more complex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the, going back to something you said about, you know, just because you have a title, doesn't mean that everyone's going to, uh, you know, stand in line and do what you say. I mean, I think that goes, that's, that resonates, but, but I will say this though, it does help, um, tone at the top, not just from the compliance officer, but from other executives help. When you can get that mandate uh, from the top that, hey, this is compliance. This is what they do. Listen to them. This is why it's important. I mean, that really helps. I mean, and it's it's a no brainer. And I think it, you know, we talk about it all the time. Tone at the top, tone at the top, tone at the top. You see it everywhere. But but I I never discount the importance of tone at the top. And, And I think 60 years from now, 70 years from now, 100 years from now, it's always going to matter tone at the top. Yeah. And if you can have the best compliance program in the world, the tightest controls. If you don't have it, the tone at the top, it's not going to work. I mean, it's really not. And, and I think that that's, that's extremely important. I mean, look, the FedEx here, it, it's, we've had the, the culture here is awesome and it, and it was here way before me and it makes my job a lot easier. I mean, it really does because there's this, underpinning and this foundation of doing the right thing and integrity 
which which makes it easy. Now, look, everyone has bad apples, and you know, otherwise we wouldn't have jobs. <laughs> we have a yeah, we with uh, six hundred thousand employees, two hundred twenty countries around the world. You know, there's a lot that could potentially go wrong, but the um, having that executive support really helps, and and especially having a mandate. So, if I were anyone starting a compliance group, I think the most important thing. I would try to get starting out is a mandate from my CEO or executive officers to the company said, hey, this is compliance. This is what they're responsible for. Give them the support they need. And I think, man, that makes your job a lot easier. So when they were forming your group in 2015, what 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 was the impetus to do that? And how I presume it's some kind of tone at the top thing to say, OK, we have to kick this off. What do you think that was rooted in and how much different and how much did that play into your decision to come and join this group? Because you, you, you kind of referred to it as like such a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was it was time. I mean, I, th- I think we realized that, hey, it, it's time that, that, that we have a corporate compliance group. We were getting bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. uh, employee size. And it, it wasn't that our operating units and business users weren't doing a great job of plus. They were. But we felt like we needed some cohesiveness and some right. It. So it was one of those things like you kind of, you know, it when you see it, ah, time is right. I think we need to get a group here to, to do that. So, no, I thought I thought it was a great opportunity just because, you know, the, you know, compliance at the time was, I mean, I think a little bit before that was sort of a growing industry. It, yeah. was, a, it was a new new thing to get into and, and having the global reach of compliance and the global responsibility was really enticing, too. I mean, you know, having having responsibility for Africa, for, for the Middle East, for, for, you know, Southeast Asia, having touch points and all that and being able to have those relationships and being able to travel when necessary to those regions. I mean, it's, I've been, I've been around the world, you know, three or four or five or six times in this role just because of that. So all that's exciting, you know, having a global reach. And, you know, when we did it, which helped is, is our CEO kind of when we created the group, uh, our CEO sent out a communication saying, hey, here's this new, new group. Here's what they do. Uh, really excited about it. It's extremely important. So that really helped us get off the ground. It really does. Yeah, that's a that's a critical step that I think a lot of folks don't get. Um, but some of them don't even know to ask for it. Let me ask you this. Here's an interesting question. I hope you think it's interesting. Um, if, you know, the compliance industry or the compliance as a job has changed a lot probably since like you were coming out of law school, right? There's, there's now, you know, law school classes on corporate compliance and things like that. If somebody was in law school right now and they were attracted to this type of a career, would, how would you tell them to think about it? What I'm kind of getting at, would you tell them to jump right into a compliance role or would you tell them to get sort of some kind of an ancillary experience that they could bring to it? And maybe a corollary to that is, you know, many times if you want to get into, uh, you know, if you want to run a hedge fund, for example, well, it's great if you have actual trading experience. Well, obviously you have to do that, right? Or you have to you have to be able to do some of these ancillary things to be really good at at this other role. How would you tell someone to start to think about, you know, winding up in a position like yours? I, I definitely think you need a foundation of other experience, legal experience. I, I think it would help before you jump into compliance. Just just how I think that you know, look, I went straight from undergrad to law school to a lawyer job. Mm-hmm. I think some kind of real world experience in between one of those would have been prepared me way better for life, you know, whether it's a job or something. So just the same as compliance, because compliance touches on all the disciplines, contracts, 
regulatory, litigation, you know, it touches everything. So I think having some type of foundational experience in whether it's communications, marketing, analytics, legal areas, I think that helps before you get into compliance. I really do. So because, you know, you bring a perspective that others may not have. And and that's why I love having such a diverse group and experience that we have. We got folks that are that are communications background, marketing background, legal background, litigators, privacy, analytics, all that. And and I wow. think it really helps um, to, to to have a better group. And if, if you could be a person that's got a bunch of those different experiences as well, especially as a CCO, I would be much better CCO if I had some experience in all those different areas because they're all relevant to what we do. Totally. They really are. Instead of now, I would say I have a lot of experience now just because I've been in the role so long. I know data privacy because I'm responsible for data privacy. I know export controls because I'm now responsible for export control. But I had to learn that on the fly. You right. know, I didn't right. have that background before. So I would be, I think it'd be great to to get some kind of foundational experience. So that's a good question too. So let's talk a little bit, changing gears a little bit. Something you said really stuck with me in our, our pre-show, and you were talking about board engagement, and you you made this comment that 75% of our job is expectations management. I don't think, I think most of the high level, you know, kind of next gen compliance people like you say that kind of a thing. But I think a lot of the people who just get into the game or they're attracted to the, you know, X, Y, and Z of compliance, they don't understand that. Tell me about your journey to like, having that light bulb turned on and what advice would you give to people who don't have that framework or haven't digested that framework yet? Yeah. Well, look, I, I, there, there, obviously there are a lot of important components to the job, but, but if you're going to be successful as a leader of a group or a CCO, you know, you got to kind of focus, you're going to need to pick three or four things that are the the most important things to your job. Otherwise right. you're going to log down. And, and as I told you, expectations management with senior management, and the board is absolutely critical because look, the board, as we all know, and as we've seen the increasing, I guess, responsibility on boards for oversight of compliance. I mean, it's expected by uh, enforcement agencies, it's expected by the courts. So one of our critical roles is to inform the board about the things that they need to know about with compliance. What do they need to know about with compliance? Because the board has an extreme responsibility of oversight. So that's A. And B, the board can really help you. I mean, the board is there to help the company. So they need to know what's going wrong and how can we fix it? You know, what's going wrong? What resources do you need? And I'll tell you what, man, the art of presenting to the board and and figuring out what they need to know. I mean, that's a, that's always a challenge and it's changing and changing. It's, it's almost like a puzzle. And and to me, it's fascinating it, it figuring out what they need to know and, and how you need to present it to them in a way that they can digest it and understand it. And, and, and part of that is, you know, look, we've, we've been doing this for what, for 2015, seven years, and we've changed the way that we present mm-hmm. to the board in those seven years. It's evolved. It really has. And it's interesting. So are your intent, like talk, walk me through that process because you got a big board and that there's probably some movement on that board. I don't, I'd love to hear like, what is your, like, what's the cadence of your interactions with them? And, you know, how do you make sure all your antennae are like dusted off to figure out your audience? Cause I mean, you have to know who you're selling to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we present, I, uh, present to the audit committee quarterly. So, okay. so we meet with the audit committee in person quarterly or via zoom, 
um, and and we we will present uh, to them on a quarterly basis. Actually, we have two off meetings per year too, so it's an opportunity six times per year. We typically only present on five of those. The sixth one is more of a enterprise risk management update where we feed some of the compliance risks into that. So we have, like I said, six opportunities where we have in-person meetings with the audit committee. And, um, you know, first of all, you establishing a relationship with the audit committee members and especially the chair is important. You know, the chair needs to get to know you personally. You need to get to know the chair personally. You need a type of relationship where that audit committee chair can pick up the phone and call you. Right. Or I can pick up the phone and call our chair anytime if we have an issue or a problem. So that that to me is key. Having these meetings, in-person meetings is key. Have an executive session opportunities where you can meet with the audit committee outside of management, just mm-hmm. one-on-one is extremely important as well. So, so all those touch points are, are really good. Now, how, you know, determining how you present and what you present uh, to the board, you know, that's, to me, that's my job. You know, my job, you know, my team does their things, their SMEs, they, they help make sure that, you know, the controls are working, they do the training, they do the nuts and bolts. But one of my main jobs is figuring out what's the audit committee need to know. Right. And is there, is that scientific? No, <laughs> it's kind of like, I know everything that's going on in the team just through one-on-ones and being involved. And as things boil up per quarter, you kind of get a feel with, okay, this needs, this is a big initiative we're working on. We need to present that. This is a big risk we're seeing. Right. Let's present that. And we do have a systematic way of identifying significant matters like significant investigations, things like that. We've got a systematic way of what boils up to the audit committee. So that helps. So it's more formulaic. Uh, we also present on hotline metrics, you know, certain hotline metrics. What are we seeing in the hotline? Mm-hmm. But the rest of it's kind of like, all right, what are the big risks we're seeing? What are some big initiatives that we have to address those risks? And you kind of try to you package it in a nice presentation that's uh, uh, easy to understand, right. uh, not too detailed, but not too high level, you know, to where they know what questions to ask. I mean, it's an art, man. It really is. And and, and I love it. I mean, the the not the game, but the whole process. Of, right preparing that presentation, delivering it and, and seeing it when it resonates well, you know, is totally. awesome. seeing it when it doesn't resonate well is a, you know, time to go back to the drawing board and, and do it right next time. Right. Um, my first job, I was, uh, I did financial due diligence for M&A deals. And in that game, you're just working for, there's all these different partners and every partner runs their, runs their projects and their reports a little bit differently. And these are, you know, it's kind of like consulting and accounting smashed together, you know? Um, and there was this one guy who was a real nervous guy and his reports would be, you know, the reports that we would work on would be 150 pages. And I mean, it was brutal. It was so bad. And, uh, you know, we'd be working like 90 hours a week and trying to rip this thing out. And like, you've spent all this blood, sweat and tears in this report. And it's like a freaking phone book or something. (laughs) And then, and, and this guy, you know, I, I kind of come from, um, I come from a, a sales background. That's what my dad uh, and mom both, both did. And I just, I'd be sitting in these meetings with this guy and I was just like, he seems so unbelievably nervous. Like he was so nervous presenting to the client. And, and then there was, there was this other guy I worked for who, who kind of turned in, into like a, an ad hoc mentor for me. And his reports were like 25 pages. And the first slide had like three things like, Hey, there's a bunch of stuff here. Here are the three things you need to worry about. And his presentations were like so easy. And you could see that these 
clients like relied on him as a true trusted advisor. And as you, you were talking about this process that you go through, I was just, I was just thinking how you're so much, how it feels so much like the second guy. And I've seen some, some clients that like we partner with, like, well, you know, show me your board presentation. And they send me this like phone book. And I'm just like, but what's, what's interesting is that I think it sort of feeds on itself the extent to which you can make a decision and you can be an editor for what you present to them. And you have the confidence to say, okay, no, delete that. That doesn't matter. They need to focus on X, Y, and Z that ends up coming for forth as you speak to them. And like, they know that you're the expert and they want to rely on the expert. I mean, as you probably want to rely on the experts that you rely on in your own sort of, you know, your own organization or whatever, they want to have that same faith in you, but it's like, just, it's, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, what comes first, the confidence or the editing? I mean, I don't know, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the confidence to like say, okay, no, these are the three points we need to talk about. And you end up talking about 20 things. It ends up feeding into this old, you know, this old caricature of what compliance is. It's the office of no, it's the off the anti-business yeah. office and all that other yeah. stuff. Well, yeah. Hey, and it's, man, the key is know the audience and, and totally. you figure it out. You know, look, the first time I went in there, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what to expect. You know, but right, right. after you do it 10, 15, 20 times, you know, you know what to expect. You know what they want to hear. You got to feel for the questions that are going to come. You know the audience. So you got to know your audience and you got to be agile and, you know, you got to switch if the audience changes a little bit. But with me, you know, and I've seen I think you've seen it, too. I've seen presentations, not not at our board or but I've seen them in the company where you can tell the one presenting did not create the deck. Their team created uh -huh. the deck. And they're just presenting it. I, I mean, I am, my team helps me put the deck together, but I am very involved. Every single word, you know, um, wordsmithing that's in there, you know, every chart, everything. So I know that deck back and forth and I know what into it, what went into it because I was involved in the project that we're talking about. Right. So, so having that intimate knowledge of what's in there and, and actually taking a very active role in building that deck right makes you a lot more comfortable in presenting because it's yours yeah it's yours and to your point we're not singing a song you know it's not like yeah. notes on a page and words that you can just kind of go with um to be able to present something high level you have to at least in your mind or at least have in a different deck hopefully it's at at your fingertips to go to those extra layers lower if that really detail-oriented guy on the board says well, what about this or what are you seeing at this division or whatever if you're just picking up something that somebody put together for you odds are you're not going to have that kind of insight that is, that you're going to need to sort of reinforce you know your sort of persuasive path in that conversation yeah yeah and look i tell my team all the time and i tell them when they practice uh, on one of the things we practice on a lot is, is presentation. So not yeah. just me, but I want my team to be good at it. And when they're presenting to me, I'm like, practice on staying high level enough to where you can get the point across, not be too detailed, but enough so the listener can ask a question. Look, I have a duty as a listener. The board has a duty as a listener to ask questions. Totally. So, so they will ask questions that they need to ask. You don't need to go into that level of detail. Stay here, rely on them to steer you where right. they steer you. So that's hard to do. We totally. all want detail. We, we want to tell them everything, you know? Yeah, but it, it just gets back to that. You know, I guess I would kind of call it materiality. Like what's actually material for a guy who's not thinking about compliance and swimming yeah. in that compliance pool all day, yeah. Yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. This is a great, this is a really great episode. Um, so let me ask you this. Let's go in our Wayback Machine 
and we can go and find a young Justin about to come out of law school, what advice would you, do you wish you had then? What advice would have kind of rocketed you forward or what perspective would you love to give yourself? Um, And so as you're thinking about that, also we have to keep in mind that the young Justin will believe you. So I feel like if I came back to my young self, I wasn't believing or listening to anybody back then man. <laughs> at all. Right. Uh, look, a couple of things that, that I think you, you learn over the years, patience, you know, career wise, you got to be patient. You know, when I was getting out of law school and, and starting in my career, you know, you want to you want to get to the top is zero to a hundred. You want to get there fast. You think you deserve uh, to be there, but you don't. So, so being patient and, and realizing that, you know, things will come if you work hard and you do the right things um, is, is something that I, I wish I was, um, you know, just thought through more back then. You know, career-wise, work-wise, everything. Uh, the other thing is that, that I've kind of learned over the years is just to, anytime you're initiating uh, a project or anything like that. I, I think baby steps, I always tell the team baby steps is a good approach. So, so instead of just trying to boil the ocean and do everything at once, like a project, let's say we want to do this analytics project. All right. We want to do the, the whole, all FedEx's financials, every country, we're going to push this through. That ain't going to work. Right. Do a POC do a couple countries, do baby steps. It's part of that agile approach I talked about earlier, because if you do baby steps and you fail early, you haven't lost a lot, right. you know, and it's easier for the, for the business to digest. It is very hard for, for, you know, companies don't like change. People don't like change, but when you can do it incrementally in baby steps, it's so much easier, man. It really is. So that's something that, that I've learned with my team. I'm like, look, baby steps project. Let's take baby steps on it. Let's slowly ease into this. And then the business and everyone will eventually catch on. Mm-hmm. And then we can we can build it up. I mean, we've got a we've got one project right now. We've got the examples of records information management. I think all companies have trouble with records information management. How are we manage all our records? Do we have a default deletion policy? You know, we're keeping yeah. all this stuff and right. we've got to get rid of it because everyone has this mindset of keep everything. And so we're starting know what we've never done this at FedEx. And it's how are we going to uh, create these policies around deleting documents, deleting email and, and all that. And and I told the team, I said, man, this is going to be a huge mindset shift change for people. People yeah. are not going to want to do this. So we've got to take baby steps in this. So the team was really good about breaking this down into like, you know, many, many small pieces and just slowly rolling it out to where, you know, the, the pain that people have by, by complying with it is, you know, is less than a big pain. So, you know, taking those baby steps and just thinking, stepping back and realizing that change is hard. It needs to be gradual. Don't try to just disrupt the world uh, with your project, you know, try to ease into it. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Um, and it allows you to kind of think in bets a little bit more and make a bunch of little bets. And then you also get a lot of, a lot of opportunities for a bunch of feedback loops to say like, Oh, well, the way I explained that didn't work. That didn't really resonate with this guy or man, this division really kind of pushed back against this. So when I roll out to the next division, that's like it versus etching everything in stone. So um, listen, I have one more, uh, one more yeah. thing on that. one more thing I just thought of too is, and I read this the other day and, it, and it's something that I've, I've, you know, you, you have kind of learned as, as you get more comfortable with yourself and your position, mm-hmm. 
is play to your strengths. You know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And a lot of times we get caught up in our weaknesses and trying to fix those, but we've got strengths that we can really, really rely on and get better at. Totally. So, you know, I think once people, and this is more of a personal thing than a compliance thing, once you get, it takes a while for anyone to get comfortable in their own skin. And, and once mm-hmm. you do, and once I did, I stopped worrying about the fact that, that I wasn't very good at this, or I wasn't very good at that and just relied on what I was good at and just right. tried to kill it, what I was good at. And, and I think that's something that I wish I would have known back then and, and focus more and not be so insecure about what you're not good at, you know? Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, look at any kind of a sports team. There's some guys that are great hitters and there are some guys that are great fielders or whatever. There are guys of all different sizes and you can find a position on whatever team you're on to really put those strengths to work. And you're not going to necessarily be all things to all people. And, you know, I think it's great advice because I'm kind of going through that same thing myself. Um, I kind of am who I am. You know what I'm saying I think if I spend more time on the things that I'm probably, you know, better than other people at, I can probably push those further and have an even big, bigger impact than being this sort of tepid, you know, kind of okay at a bunch of things that I'm not maybe naturally gifted at, but yeah. it, to your point, kind of takes a little bit of confidence and a little bit of like, you know, being able to kind of get over the insecurities of, you know, what I don't have or, or, or whatever, but what a great piece of advice. We should throw that in the mix back to a young Justin as well, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's definitely <laughs> throw that one back. I'm not sure he'd listen to that one either. <laughs> but you'll, you would have at least planted the seed. Yeah, I, and I wish I would have taken better care of my hair. You know, <laughs> you see, it's not here anymore. So that that would be another adjustment <laughs> advice. I had no idea that I was going to be uh, pretty much bald at, at 30, but oh well. <laughs> oh well. Well, listen, man. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the Ethics Experts. This uh, this was a really great episode. I learned a lot. Great getting to know you a bit, and I'll see you next week at the conference. Yeah, Nick. Hey, man. Thanks. Great conversation. Look forward to talking to you again. Have All right, brother. One. See ya. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be.